0: You're listening to Avoiding Delirium When Cancer Is Advanced, an episode of The Thing About Advanced Cancer.
1: We need to hear from families that this is actually really an acute event. This person wasn't like this 24, 36 hours ago. Something has actually happened. So you really need to get the attention of the healthcare team and say this is actually not normal behaviour. The thing about advanced cancer, a podcast from Cancer Council, New South Wales, information and insights for challenging times.
0: Hello, I'm Julie McCrossan, and today the thing about advanced cancer is that sometimes it can lead to episodes of confusion known as delirium. This can be very upsetting for everybody involved, but can delirium be treated? And better still, is there anything we can do to prevent it? To find out, we're talking to Jane Phillips, Professor of Palliative Nursing from the University of Technology in Sydney. Just to be clear, this podcast contains general information only, so we recommend that you talk to appropriate professionals about your individual situation. You can also call Cancer Council 131120 if you have any questions. Hello Jane. Hi Julie. So Jane, what is delirium for the completely uninitiated who've never
1: heard of it and never seen it? How would you describe it? I suspect once I describe it, many of your listeners will have actually seen it, and it's really quite common. So delirium actually really refers to fluctuating levels of consciousness, attention. That's probably the most important thing. Cognition, it's fluctuating. It's quite common in the elderly. It's very common in intensive care units and it's very common in palliative care patients. Is it very common in advanced cancer, people with advanced cancer? Yes, we know from our palliative care studies that it is actually common in that population. And the vast majority of people referred to palliative care even today have advanced cancer. So you've mentioned cognition.
0: Uh, People often talk about confusion. If we could walk together into a room where there's someone with delirium, what are some of the things I would notice that
1: might make you think, golly, this person might be experiencing delirium? People often get really quite mixed up around time. They can often seem quite confused. An example might be that it's like they don't know where they are. Totally. And a colloquial way of saying it might be the person's just not themselves. Totally, Julie. If you're a carer or visiting someone you know really well, you're in a really good situation to identify changes in their cognition. And it's important that you actually report those changes to the healthcare team because you will notice those really subtle changes. So it might be revealed to you
0: by something they say that uh, just doesn't seem quite right. There's something
1: a little bit odd. Yes, exactly. Last year, my 85-year-old father ended up having an acute admission and by the time I got to WA, when I went in to speak to him, he was really very orientated to time and place, knew me, knew what actually had happened But then as the conversation went on, he just mentioned that he had spent the night before in a tent. So that to me was like a real warning sign that potentially he had experienced some sort of delirium or there was some altered levels of consciousness around what actually or perceptions of what had actually really happened we often think of someone
0: with delirium uh, being very agitated, but it can be more subtle than that.
1: Are there different types of delirium? There are three different types of delirium. So there is what we call hypoactive delirium. So that is actually where the person's actually really very withdrawn. So often as a health professional, you may actually think that's their normal state and and or that you know it's just because they're really unwell, but family will often come in and say, "Oh my goodness, you know, like I can't believe Jimmy, you know, is never stops talking, and yet here's this man that's really quite withdrawn and not really said very much to you, and quite passive." And then there is hyperactive delirium. So that's probably the delirium that doctors and nurses and families often really remember because the person is actually very restless, can often be quite aggressive. They're quite agitated, they'll be trying to get in and out of bed, they'll be plucking at um their bed clothes. They may hit out at staff when they're trying to do something because they're actually very fearful. And what they're observing is, you know, they're actually seeing someone who's probably trying to harm them as opposed to help them. And then there's really a combination of periods of the person actually being very withdrawn and then periods of aggression. And we call that mixed delirium. So a person with delirium may be very restless, but they
0: may also be unusually quiet. And I guess it's really family or close friends who would recognise What's out of the ordinary for that person? Should they let someone
1: know? It would be great for families to be able to say that to health professionals because I think often what happens is it's really quite a common experience for unwell older people and often health professionals could actually think this is actually related to dementia or they've got some sort of uh, chronic cognitive change. But in actual fact, we need to hear from families that this is actually really an acute event. This person wasn't like this 24, 36 hours ago. Something has actually happened. So you really need to get the attention of the healthcare team and say, this is actually not normal behaviour. And and of course,
0: here we're talking about people with advanced
1: cancers. So they could be in their 20s, 30s, 40s.
0: Totally. And is delirium... Inevitable as part of the
1: progression of cancer, or, or not necessarily? It's not necessarily inevitable, but it's probably could be potentially experienced by a number of people because, you know, when we're unwell, the way we're, our body's balanced is very finely tuned. So, what would be some of the common triggers for an episode of delirium? So, an infection, quite often when people would have a nasty infection. Um, If people actually get dehydrated... It could be after surgery, for example. Oh, yes, totally after surgery. So a combination of different drugs... The challenge with delirium is that we know a number of factors that seem to precipitate delirium, but we don't really understand fully the underlying mechanisms. There's so many different potential causes for delirium. And is it
0: important to say that in many cases it can be reversed? It isn't necessarily
1: going to stay. Yeah, because the important thing about delirium is that it's transient and it fluctuates. But obviously, as you approach the end of life, some people, unfortunately, will die with delirium. But what we would like to think, um, and my team are working really hard on this, is to ensure that we recognise delirium much earlier, that we try and prevent it and that we manage it effectively. So if you're a family member or
0: friend, you can help by telling the healthcare team if you notice a change
1: in the person. But is there anything else you can do? The things that we can do that make a really big difference is making sure that if they wear a hearing aid, that the person's actually got the hearing aid in, that the battery is working, that they can actually hear you. If they wear glasses, make sure that they've got their glasses on and their glasses are clean and that they can actually see you. Also, um, for patients being in a room with a clock, reminding people of what the day and time is because when you're actually unwell... Often the days can run together. So just even reminding, you know, hi, I'm Jane and today's Wednesday, the 8th of May. You know, we're talking
0: about people here with advanced cancer and external events like what day it is, the fact that an election might be coming up or a new royal baby has been born or those sorts of external things. I think my own sense is that if the person is responsive and interested, You go on as if life could be going on for a very long time. You still take an active interest in the world around you. The the world still matters,
1: and that keeps you orientated. Totally, and often family and friends are people's pathway or access to the external world. So reminding people of those events is really, really important. And they're the things that you can weave into general conversations. And I think the other thing, most people have iPads. And so often people really enjoy a conversation that also includes photos. Um, They may be photos from the past or, you know, holiday places you've visited before. And I think they're the things that we can sort of engage people in in a visual conversation that's actually authentic and is meaningful for the person and try and keep them in the present.
0: You mentioned earlier that dehydration can be one of the causes of delirium so should you also encourage
1: the person to keep having sips of water? Even though people are actually often not wanting to eat and drink as much it's great if we can encourage them to drink as much as they can. And if they're in hospital, often people just actually can't reach the glass, they can't lift up the jug and, you know, people may have forgotten to offer it or when it was offered, they may not have been ready to do it. And are there other things that can reduce the risk of delirium? It's really important that we keep mobile. So sitting out of bed to eat meals, walking to the toilet, um, maintaining our mobility is really important And even today, if you go into intensive care units, whereas once we would have kept people in beds on ventilators, you will actually often see people being woken up and actually enabled to be able to sit out of bed. And there's one other thing that's really important in terms of delirium, and that's actually good sleep. You know, if you think about all of the things I've just described, this is a group of patients that often those things are all disrupted. You know, often they've had poor sleep because they might have been in hospital. Hospitals are noisy places, but we can actually give people earplugs. We can actually make sure that the lighting is appropriate. Or the person actually may have had an uncomfortable night where they've not had as good a sleep as they would like. And also, I was thinking day and night, you've
0: mentioned good sleep hygiene. When you're in intense care, and we're talking here about people with advanced cancer, day and night can be similar even in a home. So just
1: maintaining that basic orientation to day and night can make a huge difference, I think. Most definitely. And I think the way in which we organise our hospitals and the units within our inpatient facilities, you know, there's much more attention being paid to the structure of wards and and recognising that people actually need good sleep And, you know, whereas once hospital wards always had clocks in the room, you know, they're now making a comeback because people actually really need big clock faces to be orientated. So if you're the carer of someone with advanced cancer, there is actually quite a lot you can do to reduce their risk of delirium. So good sleep hygiene, um, making sure that people sit out of bed, um, mobilise as much as they can, being mindful of keeping up, drinking and eating and glasses, and um, hearing aid, aid, and as you said, engaging people in the external world. But it's also important to remember for caregivers, even though you may do all of those um, preventative items, people may still get delirium. And obviously, the team, including the family, we will need to manage that as best we can.
0: So if you do notice signs of delirium, it's important to tell the treatment team so they can look for and
1: treat any underlying causes. Is there anything else they can do? I'll go back to the example with my dad. You know, he had exemplary medical and nursing care and it was a weekend. And I just said, actually, I'm just concerned my father is a little confused. You know, he's orientated to time and place. He's got good attention. But the confusion around the ten. That's all I had to say. And within probably an hour, someone done a cognitive assessment. He had a sign on his orthopaedic frame telling him where he was and what the time was, and they were sort of pointing out to the clock. You know, it was absolutely fantastic. You must have been excited, I mean, just to see good nursing happening. Oh, totally, totally. Look, uh, just for, again,
0: finally, to look at delirium from the carer's point of view, just emotionally,
1: what do you do if you're feeling just upset Reach out and speak to someone. And my colleague one of my colleagues who works a lot in the bereavement space, um, and on our website, really speaks a lot about ambiguous loss, and that in some respects is what you probably experienced. What does that mean, it- ambiguous loss? Well, she's probably a better placed to explain it than me. But it's sort of a, a loss of the way in which you'd known the person, and it's a loss that you hadn't been prepared for or hadn't actually really anticipated. And that's actually a really very normal um, feeling. And particularly if you don't really understand what's actually happening to the person and if the team haven't actually really prepared you. But sometimes it's actually family who pick up the person has delirium or the subtle signs of delirium before the healthcare team. Look, thank you. And I,
0: I guess part of prevention or even managing is if as a family member, a carer, You notice even small things that are a little bit unusual. Let your care team know because you might be able to prevent the person getting into really extensive delirium.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: That's it for this episode of The Thing About Advanced Cancer. Thanks to Jane for sharing her insights. And we'd also like to thank the Dry July Foundation for their generous support of this Advanced Cancer podcast series. If you're looking for more information, you can ring the Cancer Council 13 11 20 Information and Support Service from anywhere in Australia or go to cancercouncil.com.au forward slash podcasts. If you have any feedback on this podcast, we'd love to hear from you. So leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on our website. If you'd like to subscribe for more free episodes of the show, you can do it in Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcasting app. If you found this episode helpful, you might want to listen to our podcast on the latest treatments for advanced cancer. In that episode, I talked to medical oncologist Dr Craig Getty about how to decide on the best treatment in your situation. The anti-cancer treatment is just one hand. The other hand is always out, reaching out to you, trying to solve your problems. Even if we run out of ways of treating the cancer, we never stop looking after people. You can find that episode, Treatment Options for Advanced Cancer, on our website at cancercouncil.com.au forward slash podcasts. Just click through to The Thing About Advanced Cancer. The stories and experiences contained in this podcast represent the views and opinions of the speakers. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Cancer Council New South Wales. This podcast contains general information only and Cancer Council New South Wales recommends you obtain independent advice specific to your circumstances from appropriate professionals. I'm Julie McCrossin. And you've been listening to The Thing About Advanced Cancer, a podcast from Cancer Council New South Wales.